Let's pray together. Father, we, um, as the more we read through the book of Acts together as a church, the more we see your truly unstoppable mission being carried out here on earth through the church. And God, we know that you have called us to be a church on mission, which means, God, every person who's a part of this church is living that mission every day. So Father, this morning, I pray that as we think about what you're calling us to as a church this year, each one of us would consider that personally. God, to surrender that decision to you and to ask that you would lead, make that calling clear. And that God, as you do that, you would call our hearts into obedience that we would trust you, God. Even if we don't know how we're gonna pay for it or how we're gonna have the courage to speak, that we would just trust that you will equip us to do that which you've called us to. So Father, could you, God, could you cause us to be more than just a church that claims to be a church on mission? Could you cause us to truly be a church that lives this amazing mission that you've called us to? Father, as we open your word, I pray you would open our hearts. God, you would speak to each one of us today. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning once again to everyone here. Um, Glad you're here with us this morning. If you're visiting with us uh, or new here and I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, my name is Jason. I have the honor of serving here uh, as a lead pastor um, along with um, a body of five other elders um, who lead the church under the lordship of Jesus. And uh, more importantly, uh, I'm a member of this church and you're surrounded by an amazing church family and I hope that you get to know somebody before you leave today. Um, if you are new here, at the end of the services, I like to, um, to hide out down the hallway. Uh, at the very end of the hallway, last room on the left is where I'll be. And I'm there just to simply get to meet you and hang out with you. So if you have time, come stop by and say hello and introduce yourself. Um, I, have a, I have a gift for you and uh, I'm not gonna tell you what it is. You have to come talk to me if you wanna know what it is. Uh, and if you're a member, quit trying to sneak in there and get those things, they're not for you. Uh, we're gonna be in Acts chapter nine this morning. We're going through the book of Acts as a church together. We started last fall. We've made it to Acts chapter nine. Let me just take a minute to catch us up to speed. So what we're noticing more and more is that the book of Acts is truly a story of what the Holy Spirit is doing through his church. It's not a story about us, it's a story about him. The more we read about uh, each different account, each different uh, work that God is doing, the more we see that this is really not about us or the people, the characters in the story, that we're all in a supporting role of the Holy Spirit. Last week, uh, in the first half of Acts 9, we looked at the conversion of Saul, uh, one of the most unlikely candidates from our perspective to become a Christian, let alone a church leader. Um, God dramatically and providentially saved Saul to be an instrument in God's kingdom. And, and he used a man by the name of Ananias, um, a, a faithful uh, follower uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, a, in a small town who at first hesitated, are you sure, God? You're calling me to go talk to this uh, terrorist in the early church? And God showed us that not only is he powerful to save, he can save anybody, uh, but that he carries out his plan through oftentimes the most unlikely candidates, which is where we enter the story. And, uh, and last week we saw that the first half of Acts 9 is not really about Saul or Ananias, it's about God and what Jesus is doing through his church. And so today we're gonna pick up the story with Peter and we're gonna, we're gonna go through two different accounts of miraculous healing where God works through the apostle Peter to bring healing for God's purpose to be revealed. And so I wanna start off this morning by just talking for a minute about 
um, the theological spectrum of miraculous works and healings, if I can, for just a moment. Um, Solid Rock Church, we oftentimes are kind of a melting pot of denominational backgrounds, churched and unchurched, and we get asked a lot of questions. Are you charismatic? Are you Baptist? Are you Presbyterian? Are you, are you? and we, we typically say yes. Yeah, we're all those things. Are you a traditional church? Are you a casual church? Yes, is the answer to all those things. And so oftentimes when we think about the Holy Spirit moving, um, we think about a variety of different perspectives on that. And so let me just kind of lay out the spectrum and then we'll go into the text. So on one end of the spectrum, uh, when it comes to the miraculous work of God uh, through uh, his people, his church, on one end of the spectrum, you have um, the name it, claim it crew. Okay, on the far end of that spectrum, these are people that believe uh, in, the, in the powerful work of God in miraculous ways through healing, raising from the dead, um, causing the blind to see, supernatural works. Uh, at the far end of that spectrum, uh, you tend to find folks who uh, believe God will do anything they ask him to do if they have enough faith. And so that's when we, we call it the name it, claim it. If you name it and believe it, God will do it. And so oftentimes on this end of the spectrum, God gets treated somewhat like a, um, a willless vending machine that he's here basically to fulfill whatever we ask him to do. However, there are people who love Jesus on this end of the spectrum and you find people with a lot of faith on this end of the spectrum. On the far other end of the spectrum, right, you find what we call the cessational view, this idea that the miraculous works of God we read about in the Bible have ceased whenever the apostles passed away. That yes, God worked miraculously, his spirit moved through his followers, and he did some amazing things. He raised people from the dead, he healed the blind, but he only did that in biblical times, and so that miraculous work has now ceased, and so on this far end of the spectrum, you tend to find people with their arms folded watching for God to move because he's going to do what he's going to do anyway, so why bother asking? You might be wrong because you may not line up with what God wants to do. And so on the far end of the spectrum, oftentimes you find people who are not necessarily walking in faith, maybe claiming to be a person of faith, but not truly walking out and trusting, believing that God wants to heal or miraculously move. And so there's kind of the theological spectrum. Now, it's so important to know, there are people who love Jesus and believe the Bible on both ends of that spectrum. Okay, And so that'll kind of help us as we get ready to walk through two different accounts of God miraculously healing through one of his servants, the Apostle Peter. Now, let's go ahead and start in verse 32. The first half of Acts 9 was about Saul's conversion. Now we're picking up with Peter. Verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda or Lydda. Now, this is encouraging to me because the mission that Jesus gave Peter and the other disciples was to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. But in the first seven chapters of Acts, these guys are still held up in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, it's not until Philip and some of the other Christians head out that the gospel actually begins going out. But now here in Acts 9, as we pick up the story again, Peter is outside of Jerusalem taking the gospel out to the surrounding cities and villages, and he's moving around from town to town proclaiming Christ. Well, in this particular town in Lydda, verse 33 says, he found a man by the name of Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. So we've got a particular individual. Um, he's not momentarily sick. He doesn't have just a temporary ailment. This guy has been paralyzed and in bed for eight years. So his affliction is visible. Bed sores, 
probably doesn't have much you know, muscle on his skeleton, skin and bones. His arms and legs are probably shriveled, shriveled down to almost nothing. Face is sunken in. We're talking about third world conditions, first century world here, not a lot of medical help. This particular individual is probably in poor condition, visibly to the eyes, been in bed for eight years. So verse 34, Peter's going to approach this individual, Aeneas, and he's going to speak to him. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now let's talk for a minute, first of all, about Peter's confidence and his faith in what he believed Jesus wanted to do here. He's pretty, he's pretty confident, isn't he? Matter of fact, we read it that Jesus, he says to him, Jesus Christ heal you, but the, probably a more accurate rendering is this, Jesus Christ is healing you. That's a pretty bold statement of faith, isn't it? Peter's stepping out on faith in this moment, believing that Jesus can and wants to heal this particular individual, so much so, he's verbalizing it. Now, let's, let's pause for just a minute and ask the question. Does God always heal when his servants ask? Well, I think we've got examples in the Gospels where the disciples aren't able to carry out certain miraculous works, either for lack of faith or because it's not necessarily God's will. So we know that God doesn't always, right, doesn't always do what we ask him to do. Now, in this particular account, as we'll see, God is going to heal. And so he's, he says to Aeneas, Jesus Christ is healing you. Rise and make your bed. Believe it to the point that you're ready to move and act and stand up, right? This isn't going to be a, a, a slow transition for Aeneas where he slowly starts to get his strength back. He slowly starts to feel better, and eventually he's able through some physical therapy to begin able to walk again. This is like an immediate Jesus is healing you right now moment. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and the rest of the residents of Lydda and then a surrounding town share, and they saw this, and they were compelled and called to the Lord. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is this is Peter's point. Peter is not calling this man to himself. Peter is not approaching this man saying, I have what you need. Call out to me, Right? He's not calling him to himself. He's calling him to Christ. That's the first and foremost, that's the primary point of what's happening here. Now, I want to look for a second with you at um, Jesus' teaching in Luke 4 where he talks about and he recounts some Old Testament stories about how God moves and works in miraculous ways according to his own desire and plan. In Luke chapter 4, uh, you find Jesus, he has just come out of the temptation in the wilderness and he's gone into the synagogue and he's taken a scroll out and he's unrolled the scroll and he's read it in front of all the people. Then he rolls it back up, sets it aside and begins to talk about why God's gonna work in some situations and not in others. Let's pick this up in Luke chapter four, verse 25. So Jesus is now teaching on what he read. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. 
And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And so Jesus is recounting a story. He's saying, remember the days of Elijah when there was a great famine, a lot of people were starving, in particular the widows who didn't even have the means or the strength to get out and try to, to scrounge up some food. But remember, God only sent him to one widow. And then he's going to talk about the days of Elijah. Verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So let's look for just a moment now what, how they're going to respond to what Jesus said. So he's in Nazareth, his hometown, and he's explaining to them why and how God moves according to his plan in some situations and not others. So he's given the, the example of the famine, how God came to one widow, and now an example where there were lepers, where God came to one leper. And in verse 28, when they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. They don't like what they're hearing, that God works according to his will and plan and purpose, not according to ours. And it, and it, and it drives them to wrath. And so here's what they do. They rose up and drove, and drove him, Jesus, out of the town and brought him to throw him or to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Jesus being the son of God doesn't submit to their plans. Verse 30, but he passes through their midst and went his way. I love that part of the story. I love it. However, the main point here that Jesus is teaching is what? God works and operates miraculously according to his desires, his will, and his plan, not always according to ours. Now, in verse, I think one of the most frequently hijacked phrases from the Bible comes, comes from Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And we love the back half of that verse, don't we? Going, give me the desires of my heart. Man, Jesus is like Santa Claus. It's going to give me what I want. If I just want it bad enough, right? If my, if my motives are pure enough and my faith is strong enough, he's going to give me the desires of my heart. I'm going to put that on a coffee cup. I'm going to hand write it on a little note card and put it in the dash of my car so I can memorize that verse and put it on my mirror while I'm painting my face and getting my, doing my grooming my hair. I'm going, to, I'm going to live by that verse. And we neglect the context of what the psalmist is actually saying about God fulfilling our desires. We back up to verse three. Here's what God's word actually says. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Well, that's a little different. Trust, do good, befriend faithfulness, Delight yourself in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord, and then he will fulfill the desires of your heart and he will act. What happens in those moments when we delight in the Lord is all of a sudden our desires begin to change and his desires become our desires and we begin to want what he wants. That's what the psalm is saying. Not that God's some vending machine and you just decide what you want. I want some healing, so God, you're obligated to give me healing. Now, there's an important point that I want to make here that, that I think... We're going to clearly see in just a minute. God deserves to be worshipped whether he does anything in my life or not. 
I'm going to say that, and then I want you to think on that as we talk today. God deserves to be worshipped, praised, exalted, whether or not he answers my prayer request. Why? Because his worth is rooted in who he is, not what he does for me. And I think each one of us needs to take a step back and think about that. What is your praise and your worship of God rooted in? Is it purely in what he does? It's not wrong to worship him for what he does. We believe he's mighty to save, and we worship and we celebrate him for that. We believe he's able to heal. We worship him. We celebrate that he heals, that he, that he comes to us in our despair, and he brings us hope. He calls us out of our darkness. He breaks the shackles of our addictions. We believe God does these things, and we worship him for that. But does he deserve to be worshiped even if he doesn't? Because see, if you can't say yes to that, then you're going to be prone to respond like the, the folks we read about in the synagogue in Luke 4. And you're going to get angry at God when he doesn't do what you ask him to do. I've asked for this over and over again. Why haven't you done this? And so as we think about what it means for God to heal, we have to understand that God is not a willless God. He has desires, passions, ambitions, and he has a divine, good, and perfect will for us and for you. Now, what I wanna do, I wanna share with you a story. Um, in my Christian journey, I have witnessed numerous accounts that I would say unmistakably are the work of God. Miraculous accounts of different things. Whether it was just the orchestration of a series of events that led two people to a specific conversation, one person becomes saved, uh, or whether it was praying over somebody who, who's in a terminal illness situation and God heals that person. But probably the most vivid account that I have experienced to date that, that I feel like somewhat relates to what we just read about in Acts chapter nine took place around 1999. Um, I had been a believer for about five years. I was on a mission trip in Mexico. And I was there actually with a couple of uh, men who are members in our church today. Uh, Brian Walker and Jason Lewis were, were there on that same trip. And we were working out of this base town of San Antonio, a real small town deep in Mexico. And we had all three gone different directions, working with different towns and villages. Uh, the pastor there in San Antonio, Brother Bert, was actually an American uh, who, who, was, uh, who, who was a Mexican-American who was serving this town as a missionary. And he would take us to these little villages outside of San Antonio. And so by villages, what I mean is, little groupings of buildings that um, all of them had dirt floors, none of them had electricity, and daily they would go down to the river to get their water for everything they needed, kind of villages. And so we had split up in this little village and doing different things, and I was there in the uh, little church getting ready for vacation Bible school, and we sent a team out of college students to go door-to-door, -door, inviting people to come to vacation Bible school, and then offering to pray over the family if they had any needs. And um, the, after that first time they went out, we got back together that evening back in San Antonio and we were recounting stories and some of the girls, the college students, had uh, seen something that they wanted to share with us that was really disturbing. One of the houses they had visited, they knocked on the door and, uh, and, a, and a husband and wife came to the door and they said, and as soon as they kind of approached the doorway, this, this, this horrific smell hit them. Just sounded like, it just smelled like just, you know, just bleh. And so they begin to interact with this family and saying, hey, we're Christians, we're here to, uh, to pray for you and to invite you if you have any kids uh, to come to Vacation Bible School. And they said, well, we have a son. He's 16 years old and he can't get out of bed. He's paralyzed and he's mute. 
And so these college girls were there, and well, can we pray for you? And the family went on to tell them through a translator that they had been trying all sorts of sorcery and witchcraft and satanic worship to try to get this boy healed. And, and these girls stepped inside, and they saw on there was a two-room house on the left-hand side in the kitchen on the table. Sure enough, there was the head of an animal there and candles, the evidence of seances and different things that this family had been trying uh, to, to get this boy healed. And in and out of the, of the house were these pigs and these goats and these chickens just running all crazy. And, you know, the, the mom and the dad were just there at their wits' end, and these girls prayed over the family, and then they walked away a little bit unnerved by what they had seen and experienced. So they brought that report back to us, and we decided the next day um, we wanted to go visit this family, but we wanted to send a couple of the men uh, to go with and to actually step inside and to pray over this family. And so um, I got to go with the team, and a Brazilian missionary by the name of Ivan, um, a very outgoing, uh, very uh, loud, uh, spoken, zealous believer in Jesus. Uh, he was Brazilian, which meant he spoke Portuguese and broken Spanish. And so Ivan and I and these girls were going to go back to this house and visit the family. So we did. We go back, and sure enough, I mean, just approaching the house, the, the, the smell hit you. And so we had stepped into the, the doorway, and the family had cleaned up now. They knew we were coming. So they had gotten everything off of the table, but there was still just blood stain on the table, uh, the evidence of what had been there the day before. And the family had welcomed us into their home now to, to pray over their son, who was 16 years old. I don't know how long he had been in bed, but he couldn't sit up. He couldn't speak. He was just drooling over his face, you know, down his face, and he was skin and bones. Just hands were seized up, nothing but just skin hanging off his bones. Well, Ivan begins to uh, to minister to this family, like I said, in Portuguese slash broken Spanish. At this point in time, I'm just learning Spanish, so I'm having a hard time following along. And so he just starts getting fired up. And he begins to talk to them about, you know, how they've been reaching out to demons and Jesus is the only answer. And, and they've been reaching out for all these different, uh, you know, spiritual forces to heal their son, but only Jesus can heal their son. He begins to rebuke this family and, and he begins to get, the more excited he gets, the more, I don't even know what language he's speaking. I think he was drifting in and out of Spanish and Portuguese and tongues, and, but he's, he's getting fired up. And the more fired up he gets, I mean, the more locked in the mom and dad become and their eyes become, you know, wide open and the animals in this little house started going crazy, crazy, running all around us. And here I am, I'm kind of behind the kitchen table in front of the bed with the boy. Chickens are running everywhere. I don't know what to do. I'm just listening, you know. I'm waiting for my cue to say amen and then let's get out of here. And at one point, Ivan begins to shout at the mom and he's shouting about these animals. And then so the mom just begins gathering up these chickens and throwing them out the window. Just phew, phew. And I was trying to imagine, I think at one point I saw a pig go out and, it, and they were, the animals were running back in the door and she was just, as fast as she could grab them, she was throwing them out the window. I was trying to imagine you know, what the villagers were thinking outside, right? <laughs> this man yelling in Portuguese and Spanish and then tongues and, and animals are flying out the window. It was like that scene where Jesus cast the demons into the pigs and they run off the cliff kind of deal. Like, I don't know what was happening. That's what I think was happening. And, uh, and so I'm just standing there, standing there and, and sure enough, all of a sudden, Ivan turns to the family and he asked them if they believe in Jesus. And in that moment, they said, we trust in Jesus. Everything got quiet. And y'all, that boy sat up in bed. I've never seen anything like it in my entire life. I've, I have no proof um, other than just looking at him that before that he was unable to. Sat up, began to smile. 
And, here, and here, for me, here's the proof. Mommy and daddy hit their knees, just, just in tears, weeping and praising the Lord. And that family became Christians that day. I didn't understand all that was being spoken, but I can say without a shadow of a doubt, the Holy Spirit was in that house and God saved that family. Now, there have been a lot of things in my life that I've witnessed and I thought, man, I'm gonna give glory to God for that, that you might say, well, that was circumstance or that was, you know, whatever, okay? But there are certain events, certain things that God does that you know that only God did it. And this is the kind of story we're reading here. Are there potentially other stories that didn't make the book of Acts where maybe Peter or one of the apostles prayed for something and it didn't happen the way they wanted it to happen? I'd be willing to say, yeah, that probably happened. Well, why didn't Luke include them? Because it's not a story about Peter. It's a story about what God is doing through Peter. If you're taking notes with us today, I wanna hit this first statement. The unstoppable church operates in complete faith that God can do anything. If we don't believe that, what are we believing? That God can do anything while submitting every desire and plan to God's good and perfect will. See, it doesn't have to be one extreme of the spectrum or the other, does it? We can be a people of faith who believe God can miraculously heal. He can raise a paralyzed man out of bed. He can bring the dead back to life. He can heal your affliction, your suffering, your addictions, right? We can believe that at the same time, simultaneously submitting those desires to his good and perfect will, saying, as Jesus so perfectly exemplified, nevertheless, what we want, God, your will be done. I mean, isn't that how he taught us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God isn't sitting on his throne running out of ideas. God isn't sitting there without a will and a purpose and plan hoping that some Christian, someone on the earth will come up to a, with a solution for a problem. God has a good and a perfect plan for your life. Now what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at another story. And it's a story of um, a believer who had a lot of friends who were believers um, who had passed away. This lady by the name of Tabitha. And Peter's gonna step into her house and there's a room full of just people weeping and mourning Tabitha's death. Um, there are all kinds of just evidences. They're looking at the garments that she's made and, and all the, the symbols of her acts of service. This was a servant among servants. And Peter's gonna step into the room and he's gonna ask everybody to get out. This is where we're gonna pick it up in verse 40. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and he raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known through all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days 
with one Simon a tanner. And we'll look at him next week. Now let's talk about what we don't know, first of all. First of all, we don't know why Peter asked everybody to leave. Maybe he was removing distractions for himself. He didn't want to be distracted. He wanted to get everybody out. He just wanted to focus on what he was praying and what he believed God was doing. Maybe he was concerned that people in the room just didn't have faith, that God could actually raise somebody from the dead, and so he asked them to leave. Maybe Peter was a little bit concerned because he didn't know what God was going to do if God was actually going to raise this woman. We don't know, do we? We don't know why Peter asked all of them to leave, and we also don't know what he prayed for. All we know is that Peter knelt down beside her bed and he prayed to the Lord. Then after he prayed, he spoke to her body and he said, Tabitha, arise. Let's focus for a minute on what we do know. First of all, through what we've talked about today and even through this account, we know this, that God has a purpose in healing. Because think about it like this. Any healing that God does here on earth in this life, your life or somebody around you is only momentary healing. I mean, if God heals your cancer and you never get cancer again, you still have to die short of Jesus coming back, right? I mean, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus still had to die again. So anything God does in our lives is only momentary healing anyway, right? Whether he heals your cancer and provides a job, whatever God decides to do for you in your life is only momentary. So what is the purpose driving God's momentary healing in our lives? This, uh, this causes me to think about an account from John chapter 9 where um, Jesus and the disciples are walking through a town. And as oftentimes you see in kind of a third world town, if you're, if you're disabled, you're blind, you can't walk, you, somebody will carry you and put you out on the sidewalk to beg. And so his disciples are passing by, and on the side of the road, there's a, a blind man there, and the disciples ask him, Jesus, whose fault is this? Is it his sin or his parents? And in Jesus' answer to them, we've learned a lot about the heart of God and his desire to work. We'll pick this up in John chapter 9, verse 1. This will be on the screen if you want to follow along. And so as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So they're asking the why question. Why is this man blind? Why is he suffering? You ever asked that question? Why? Why are we going through this? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to this person I love? Why is it happening to them and not me? And the disciples are asking that kind of question. Why is this happening? And, 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 and their immediate default answer was somebody must have messed up here, right? Because sin oftentimes leads to suffering, right? That's, that's, that's the trajectory of sin. Sin leads to suffering. And so in this particular case, they're saying, well, where did the sin start? Whose fault is this? And Jesus answers, in this particular situation, it's not the result of his sin or his parents' sin. The reason this man is blind is that the powerful work of God might be displayed through him. And then as the story goes on, we read, we, Jesus speaking about himself and the disciples, must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. There's a time period where we get to engage in doing the work God is doing here. Night is coming. 
when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back See. Now, this story started with the why question. What's the why? Jesus said that the glorious work of God might be displayed. God heals our momentary afflictions in order to display his glory and his goodness. That's one of the reasons why God heals. We look forward into Revelation chapter 21. We get a beautiful picture of the purposes of God coming together, not in a momentary way, but in an eternal realities. And in Revelation 21, this is a, a famous passage of scripture. You may have heard this read at a funeral or in a different setting. Listen to the first four verses of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, like we just sing about, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse four, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, right now in this life, God can wipe away your tears. He can bring peace and comfort to your despair, your grieving, your mourning, and he can wipe away your tears. But it's just momentary, isn't it? Because you might cry again tomorrow or later today. What we're reading about, though, is an eternal reality in the future where God wipes away every tear once and for all. He wipes away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Right? So at this moment, there's no fear that death is still lingering off in the distance. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God heals our momentary afflictions in this life in order to display earthly examples of the eternal realities that God has promised for us in the future. So in this moment where God's raising Tabitha, right, from death, that's momentary. But what God is doing is he's displaying something that is eternal reality for her because she is saved, right? This is just a snapshot, a preview of what is to come. It's a chance for us who walk by faith, who believe and trust to go, yes, that's an example of what we're longing for. That's gonna happen for all of us one day. It's also a time where God uses moments of miraculous healing to direct our hearts forward to a, to a moment where God will bring permanent healing. And then I would say this last truth about what we understand about healing through what we've read today in both accounts, God heals our momentary afflictions in order to turn hearts towards Jesus. That's the main point of these stories. Peter called Aeneas, to trust in Jesus, not in himself. And many people from Lida and from Sharon, what happened? They turned to Christ. In this particular story uh, with Tabitha, 
after you finish it out, he gave his hand to her and he raised her up. He wasn't helping her up. This is, the, this is a display of chivalry. This is Peter saying, let me show you what God has done. He presented her to the saints and the widows. For what reason? To show them what God has done. And then from there, and it became known throughout all of Joppa and many believed in the Lord. That's the point of it all, right? Now, let me ask this question one more time. Does God deserve to be worshiped whether he does anything in our lives or not? Now, that's a profound question I think every one of us needs to be able to answer. Or is your affection for Jesus contingent upon him doing what you want him to do? Fulfilling your wish list, becoming the supernatural vending machine. You just hit the button and he does what you want. And here's a good way to find out. We go back to the story in Luke 4. How did the people respond when Jesus said, God's going to work in some towns, he's not going to work in others. He's going to work some ways in some lives and not in others. How did they respond? With wrath. When we find ourselves responding to God in anger because he hasn't done what we want, we're treating him like a, like a supernatural Santa Claus vending machine. We're not allowing his desires to become our desires. We're mad because our desires haven't become his desires. And we're not standing on the truth of scripture. We're not living out Psalm 37, right? We're not walking in faith and submission. And so this last statement I'd love to, to fill out with you before we wrap up is this. God performs miraculous work through the unstoppable church in order to display his glory, his goodness, and draw hearts to himself his glory, his goodness, and to draw hearts to himself. Now, if you're a person who lands on the spectrum and you tend towards one end of the spectrum or other, uh, or the other, um, you can love Jesus and be on this spectrum, okay? But let me share with you my heart for our church. Can I do that? My heart for our church is that we will become a, a people that trust and believe that God can do anything that's, that doesn't run in conflict with his character or his revealed will through the word, right? But that God can do anything. He can heal, he can break addiction, he can save, while simultaneously submitting our desires to his good and perfect will. If you're visiting with us today, you're stepping into our church at a really exciting time. We look back over the last 12 months at all the amazing things God has done in our church family. Lives saved, marriages healed, addictions being broken, sin being drawn out into the light, depression, right, is finding hope, despair is giving way to victory. We're seeing God work in some amazing ways in the lives of our church family. There's no doubt he's working here. We're rolling into this next year fully expecting God to do more than we could ever imagine or ask. But God is not on the hook to do everything we ask or tell him to do. We're moving forward in faith right now. We're moving forward in faith, believing that God is doing something here and he, he wants us to build and create more space for lives to be changed. Do we know what that's gonna look like? Do we have all the answers? No, and I've told you, and I'll tell you again, if we ever get to a point where we have all the answers, be alarmed. Because now we're carrying out our own plans. 
when we follow the Lord, like Abraham followed the Lord, like others have followed the Lord, it's a go and see faith. It's God saying, come, follow me, and I'll show you kind of faith. We don't walk into every situation believe God is going to heal, but we walk into every situation believing God can. If you ask the elders to pray over you, we, we, we love when church family comes to us and asks us to pray over you, we do, but you'll hear us say, God, we believe you can heal this, whatever this is, but we submit this to your good and perfect plan. Your will be done. We've talked about going forward financially. Some of you have asked us, are we gonna go into these new buildings debt-free? Back in October, we, we got together in a very specific conversation as elders. We talked through this and we prayed through this together. And here's where we landed. We believe God can. Now, that's a lot of money, pastor. It is a lot of money. That's why we're trusting him and not in us. We don't have a lot of money, but we believe he can. But we take that belief that he can and we submit it to what he wills. And as an elder body, we say, we don't, we don't know, we're gonna follow him. We're gonna go and see what he has for us. But we believe he can. And we are gonna be a church that believes. We're gonna be a church that prays, expecting God to heal. We're gonna ask God to restore marriages. We're gonna ask God to break addictions. We're gonna ask God to heal cancer. We're gonna pray over you. Every Sunday at the end of our services, we have prayer partners at the back. That's not just something we, you know, we do because we have to. Like we genuinely wanna pray over the things going on in your life. They'll be at the end of, at the, end of the service, they'll be at the back. Our elder meetings are always open for you to come, you and or your family and have us pray over you. We, we, love, we enjoy, we love being able to do that with you. Okay, but we are gonna be a church that believes. We're gonna pray in faith and we're gonna pray in submission to his good and perfect will. I wanna, I wanna end by praying, uh, leading you in prayer this morning and inviting our, our worship team to come back up. If you would just maybe take a minute to clear your mind and pray with me. I think this is such an important conversation for us to have today. Um, one, because it's, it's in the scriptures. That makes it important to us. But the second reason why I think it's important for us to have this conversation is that right now I believe that there are people even in this room right now who are asking God for a miracle. And maybe you're at that place of frustration or doubt or not really sure what God wants to do and and for the rest of us, we've been at that place and we'll be there again. Where we're crying out to God in desperation to fix something, to heal something, to change something. This morning, I don't know how the Lord is speaking to you, but I wanna give you a moment just to pray and maybe even to ask. Maybe you're at that point of frustration and you've been praying for the same thing over and over and over again. And, Maybe you just realized this morning, but you haven't been praying in submission. So maybe for you, it's to bring that request and to lay it down at the, at the feet of the Lord and say, your will be done. Maybe you've been praying for the same situation, the same person over and over and over and over again. And this morning, God would say to you, don't give up, keep praying. Father, this morning we thank you that you are a loving Father. God, we realize and we recognize we don't always ask for the things that you want for us. 
and in a strange kind of way, we're thankful that you don't give us what we ask for. Just like with our own children, God, we know that we don't always ask for what is good and what is perfect and what is right. God, I pray that this morning could be a time of sweet submission, a time of coming to you once again and saying, I trust you, God, you are good. Your will be done. Father, for others of us, maybe we've, we've been walking in a season of doubt. Maybe we've quit believing that either you care, or maybe we've quit believing that you're able. So maybe this morning would be a time for you just to stir our, our faith, to believe that you absolutely can. God, wherever each person is this morning, would you meet us in this place and would you speak to us and work among us? Pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus.